You are Locked On Indians, your daily Cleveland Indians podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Ellis of the Locked On Indians podcast. On today's show, we'll talk about the virtual Indians. We're going to discuss the canceling of the Cape Cod League and what that means. And then we're going to continue on looking at the final two spots in the Indians' all-time rotation. We already discussed the fact that Bob Feller and Stan Kovaleski at one and two are pretty much undebatable. Those are the top two arms in Indians history. Uh, The big game performance is there for Kovaleski. For Feller, it's just the overall dominance of numbers. At three, Addy Joss with his brilliant but somewhat short career. I mean, there are players who do have careers and um, at 30, uh, just because of injuries or other things. His story is especially tragic because he passes away a little bit beyond the age of 31. And at the way he was performing, uh, there's little doubt that he would have easily elevated himself into that uh, that discussion with the other two arms. We'd probably be talking about him uh, just in, in the Indians record books for virtually every pitching number, I think, if he had stayed healthy based on what we had seen, um, if not for his tragedy. So we got two spots to talk about. We talk about the top 10 arms by war to kind of look at that. But let's start off with our virtual Indians. So it is a three-game series in Tampa. The Indians just came off of a series win against the Yankees. They are playing well, and in game one of that series on the on Monday, uh, it is Clevenger versus Brendan McKay. Clevenger goes six and two-thirds innings, gives up one run on three hits, six walks, and three strikeouts. Uh, The walks got him into a little bit of trouble, but he was able to manage it throughout the game. Uh, For McKay, he had five walks as well, but he also gave up a pair of home runs, one to Carlos Santana and one to Oscar Mercado. For Santana, that was his ninth of the year, and really that's all she wrote. I mean, Santana's was a two-runner, Mercado was a solo shot to lead off the game, and the Indians win this one three to one. The Indians have three runs on five hits, no errors. For Tampa, it is one run on four hits and one error. Oliver Perez pitches one and one-third innings of relief, and there is not a thing to talk about for him. Uh, Brad Hand pitches the ninth, and he gives up a hit but strikes out the side to record his fifth save of the year. A little over three hours for this one, but uh, yeah, another win for the Indians. Clevenger with another strong performance. Carlos Carrasco is our Tuesday pitcher facing off against the left-hander Ryan Yarborough. In this one, uh, Santana gets a double. Franmil Reyes has a seventh home run of the year. The Indians pick up another win. They have six runs on ten hits and an error. Franmil Reyes also had the error. Multi-hit games for Jose Ramirez. Jose, uh, I already said Jose Ramirez. Carlos Santana, Franmil Reyes, and Cesar Hernandez, who over the past week or so is finally starting to heat up. Uh, making him a dangerous addition to the bottom half of that lineup. On the other side of things, the only three hits, one to Austin Meadows, one to Nate Lowe, one to JT Realmuto, and they only had one walk as well, and that went to Willie Adamas. Uh, For the Indians, as I mentioned, Carrasco, eight innings, two hits, one walk, nine strikeouts. Stellar performance. His ERA on the year is 2.27. He is 5-0 since coming back from injury. He has been a man-possessed. Uh, Ryan Yarborough, six innings, six hits, four runs, all earned on two hits and eight strikeouts. Brad Hand, I probably should not have brought him in in the ninth, but I did. And he pitched, uh, he allowed one hit, and that is the only thing that occurred in the ninth for Hand. Uh, They were set up with a lot of lefties in a row, and 
I just went with Handover Perez at that point in time. But another win by the Indians on Tuesday. Again, uh, stellar, stellar performance by Carlos Carrasco. And then in the final game of the series on Wednesday, it's Aaron Saval versus Blake Snell. The, I think what set up well for the Indians in this series is they faced three lefties in a row, and their lineup really is much more, much better suited to left-handers. When you look at Fran Mel Reyes, Domingo Santana, Jordan Luplo, those three guys in particular, which are with injuries to Francisco Lindor in the game, are your four, five, six hitters, uh, really sets up. So this was a series that set up well for the Indians. Carlos Santana stays hot. He gets another extra base hit, a double. Cesar Hernandez also gets a double. A four RBI game by Roberto Perez. Multi-hit game by Santana, Cesar Hernandez, and Roberto Perez. Home run by Roberto Perez, his fifth of the year. Uh, Jordan Luplo gets a triple in this one. And the Indians pick up another win, sweeping the Rays. Uh, they have seven runs on 11 hits and no errors. The Rays have two runs on 10 hits no errors. So Luplo gave up eight hits and a walk over seven and a third innings. It's just 105 pitches over those seven and a third innings. He struck out seven and allowed the two home runs. Uh, a home run, a solo shot to Leah Dames was one of those. He was able to limit the damage in spite of kind of a high hit count in this one by missing bats and striking guys out. Uh, that takes him to four and one on the year. Uh, knocks his ERA under four for the year. He's now down to 391. Oliver Perez, again, I mentioned Tampa A, a lot of left-handed pitching, but also a lot of left-handed hitters. So uh, I brought him Perez in this one. He pitched one in two-thirds innings. He gave up two hits and a walk. He struck out one. I had Saval go one into the the eighth just because there was a righty before a whole mess of lefties. So Specifically, he was under 100 pitches at the time. He got over 100 pitches, and we went to the left-hander at that point. But a a nice three-game sweep by the Indians. That makes their month of April. They go 18-10 and over the the month because uh, Thursday is an off day for them before coming back home to face the San Francisco Giants. Not a strong team. They are currently two games back to the Royals, and they lead the wild card at this point. Uh, the Giants series really has gives them a chance. And that's the thing. You look at this month in general. So it's the Giants, three at home. The Rangers, four at home. We'll see how the Rangers are. And there's a lot of potential for them to have kind of a, a rough year. Then the Tigers, then the Orioles. A big series with the Twins. A short one against the Reds and the Dodgers is after that. So that's, that is kind of a rough stretch. Uh, the Angels, I still personally don't believe in the pitching. And then you end with the Royals at the end of May there if, uh, if we had normal baseball. So th- there's an opportunity to kind of gain some ground um, in the May and June times uh, for our virtual Indians. Uh, Carlos Carrasco leads the team in wins in ERA. Brad Handen saves. Average is Jose Ramirez at 353. Carlos Santana with home runs with nine and in terms of overall league leaders in terms of runs created jose ramirez leads all the american league in terms of fielding independent era carlos carrasco is first a little bit better than garrett cole home run santana is in a tie for sixth and an on-base percentage jose ramirez is in a tie is fifth not an tie. he's just in a fifth all by himself so Virtual Indians are turning around after a, a rough start to the year. Uh, we'll have our commercial break. We'll do the quick talk about uh, canceling of the Cape and a little bit of talk about the possible alignment, and then we will uh, dive into those spots four and five on the all-time Indians. So remember to check back in. 
So the Cape Cod League is canceled. Uh, that's the news. It's not a huge surprise, but at the same time, it's a little bit of a surprise because the Cape Cod is a um, it's a summer league. It's it's an, a July mostly league, and I get it because it's also a league. It's not like they have TV deals. It's all about getting people in and making. It's not like it's a huge money making venture, but uh, it, ticket sales are how they're going to generate money, and there are probably going to be very little to no ticket sales. This is huge for a team like the Indians because next year's draft we expect to be unencumbered. Um, you know, players may not be able to get all their money at once, but it's going to be a full draft. And the Indians in the 2019 draft uh, heavily, heavily drafted based on performances from the Cape. Every single draft pick on day one or two, it felt like if they were not a high school kid, you could go back and be like, oh, this was a guy who had an impressive Cape. They were using the Cape and the performance there a lot for the 2019 draft. So the loss of the Cape is significant, specifically for the Cleveland Indians for that reason. Uh, the other bit of news we have is that there's talking about like three divisions of like 10 teams each and then a, a playoff and it's all out there. But one of the other things that's come up too with this is something that I've talked about on this podcast, if you've been listening, some of my prognostication, which is this idea of basically going to a city and having kind of all teams play in one city, like some play in the day, some play in the evening. It's, you know, the important thing, if you want to get as many games in as possible, get those TV contracts uh, fulfilled as much as you can, keep people happy, get eyes on the game is to, to go to places that have domes so you want to look at a lot of talk right now has been arizona but you know i think more so than arizona is the idea of a dome stadium something you can control from with weather conditions i think that is probably more important um, than anything else when it comes to figuring out where teams should play and there are six retractable dome stadiums that's Chase Field, Rogers Center, Safeco, Minute Maid Park, Miller Park, and Marlins Stadium. And I would think that like those six parks are the places uh, I would look into uh, more than anything else. Rogers Stadium in Toronto would be kind of interesting, just from the perspective of it being located, um, you know, in Canada. I don't know how much they would be all about that, um, but you know, looking at this. Uh, Safeco with Seattle, where a lot of this stuff started, is kind of you know a bit of an issue as well. If we're being honest, um, Miller Park here in Milwaukee, another interesting one, but it's you know it's not the biggest city. I don't know how they would kind of, and it's a northern city, and you know they've talked about kind of uh, weather and the like, and trying to find those nicer locations. Uh, Marlin Stadium, I think, is a slam dunk. Uh, it's an interesting park at some place that. Uh, you know, in Miami, good weather. Chase Field being the one for Arizona makes a lot of sense again. Uh, but then, yeah, I, Safeco, Rogers, and Miller are kind of interesting uh, shakeups as well. But uh, just something to keep in mind, those six parks. Um, it is interesting that outside of Marlin Stadium, the rest of those parks were built. Well, Rogers Center was 89. That's an older park, but uh, Chase Field was 98, 99 for Safeco, 2000 for Minute Maid Park, which I completely skipped over, and then Miller Park in 2001. And I think I skipped over Minute Maid Park because I just can't see doing anything to reward the Astros um, at this point in time. So, I, I, uh, yeah, let's just say that I, it would be <laughs> look so bad if they were one of the like center sites for something after everything else that went on. But uh, it seemed to be a fad. And then Marlin Stadium 2012 was the last one of those we had. So 
just keep that in the back of your mind uh, as we're figuring things out with this baseball season. Those are the six sites that would make the most sense to have kind of just a anchor spot where groups of teams play out of. So let's talk all-time Indians. The thing we have to talk about with all-time Indians for this fourth spot is do we count the Cleveland Spiders? Do we? I mean, the Cleveland Spiders were a National League team that essentially when they folded, this opened the door for uh, the Cleveland Indians and the American League to move in, which helped solidify the American League as its own league. Uh, the Spiders had a horrible season. Uh, they went 40 and 120, I believe, which is like the worst record in baseball in 1899, one of the worst ever. And because of that, they the ownership essentially reduced it to minor league status. Um, and the whole thing just opened up for the Indians. So they're separate, but often connected um, franchises. And the reason we have to talk about this and the Cleveland Spiders and all of this is because that's where Cy Young started. Um, when you're talking about pitching, you know, is there anything more synonymous with great pitching than Cy Young? Uh, the award is named for him. The win total is, of course, astronomical. He did pitch for the Indians towards the end of his career um, in the American League, but two and a half seasons, I think they were like his last. His final season was a split season, as I recall. But uh, two and a half years there, and he pitched well. He was pitching well even in his age 44 year. But if you count those early years, he had eight years with the Spiders at the start. And then you're looking at a guy who spent 10 years uh, pitching in Cleveland, who's, again, the award is named for him. He debuts at age 23 in 1890, and he is with Cleveland until 1898. Uh, 1899 is the debacle season where that is the end of the Spiders. He gets assigned by assigned to the St. Louis Perfectos by the Cleveland Spiders and then jumps from the Perfectos who become the Cardinals to the Boston Americans. And then eventually he gets traded to the Cleveland Naps for Charlie Check and Jack Ryan. And eventually he gets released by the, the Cleveland Naps as they were at the time. But he pitches in Cleveland in 1909, 1910, and 1911 before his release. And he's released that year... Uh, his ERA plus is an 89, so not the strongest, but his overall ERA was a 388. He had seven games. He had started 46 innings. Uh, the overall numbers aren't bad. He, of course, is all-time number one in baseball in wins and losses. Games started, uh, complete games, innings pitched, hits allowed, earned runs, and total batters faced at nearly 30,000. I think we have to include him. I think the Spiders are a part of Cleveland baseball history. I think they're a part of the all-time history of Cleveland baseball. When I look at this team and I see that he spent, you know, his entire 20s pitching in Cleveland, and then he ended his career essentially pitching in Cleveland, like, to me, that makes him enough. And, yes, the Cleveland Spider statistics um, don't get added in on baseball reference, so he's not in the Indians, like, top 10 for—he's not even the top 50 for war— but if we added in the Spiders with the Indians, he would be, and he would be a lot higher. So I think the only reason he's not automatically put in is because of that debate that they, one was a National League team, one was an American League team. They are separate entities, but in the history of Cleveland baseball, Cy Young is going in at number four. So that leaves one spot open. So just looking at the top ten, Mike Garcia I've talked about uh, before. He is one of the great underrated pitchers in Indians history. Uh, most people don't really remember him. He didn't really debut until his age 25 year. But from 49 to 59, he was an excellent pitcher and one of the top 10 pitchers, starters in Indians history. And most people don't know his name. So that's so. while he is Mr. Underrated, he is not 
uh, going to make the all-time rotation. Uh, Willis Hudlin, who was tied with Corey Kluber, he pitched with Cleveland from 26 when he was 20, though it was only 32 innings, basically, and uh, 27 is when he would make his full-time debut. And he would pitch in Cleveland all the way through 1940. That'd be his final year in Cleveland. So from 26 to 40, that's a lot of seasons in Cleveland. And you look at the numbers, the only time he ever led the league in any category in that time was hits, which was in the 1927 season. Uh, he did have a top 25 MVP finish that year, but no other awards through his career. Just a constant good but not great arm. One of those guys that he just pitched so much, it allowed him to kind of register. So appreciate the time put in, but uh, again, you can't put him in just based on the amount of time. Early win. Uh, he is next up on the list and part of one of the best uh, trades the Indians were a part of and then one of the worst trades they were a part of, uh, which is a you know interesting dichotomy. The Indians got early win following the 48th season. They got him with Mickey Vernon for Joe Hayes, Eddie Kleinman, and Eddie Robinson. Eddie Robinson kind of might bounce in your head because he was the only person left from the 48 championship team who was still alive when uh, the Indians were in the World Series a few years ago. So the Indians flew him out. And there was a lot of talk about why didn't they do it sooner? Well, he's also the one of the few guys who refused to shake Larry Doby's hand when he came onto the team. There was there were some issues there. He was not a very progressive player. Um, there are a few stories you can dig up about him uh, basically wanting no part to do with Larry Doby. And I think a lot of that was part of the reason they were willing to trade him. So he was the best player in that deal, but these are spare part guys. Even Robinson was, and early win was not. He came to the Indians. Um, prior to this, he had made one all-star game in 1947. The Indians would get him in his age 29 year, and he would be all right that year, but starting in 1950 in his age 30 year, uh, he's phenomenal. And he is up for an MVP finish or an all-star game every single year through age 40. Uh, after his age 39 year where he finished, uh, I'm sorry, after his age 37 year in 1957, the Indian shift into the White Sox. We talked about that in the Mini Minoso deal. Wynn would go on at age 39 to win the Cy Young for the White Sox. The Indians would spend a lot of time searching for pitching. But Wynn pitched with the Indians from 49 through 57. Uh, a stellar, stellar player. Honestly, he is one of the players you have to consider for this spot in terms of the Indians' all-time war. He is uh, seventh, really close behind Bob Lemon. Should we give the case for Corey Kluber? Let's just kind of dovetail into that real quickly here. Uh, when it gets to Corey Kluber, who's close but isn't going to quite make it, I think really the big reason... While Kluber uh, had a level sustained dominance that really the Indians haven't had from a pitcher since Bob Veller, when you look at the how long uh, Corey Kluber's peak was from 2014 through 2018, uh, but at the same time, that's just five years. And when you look into it, he only had six years of 20 or more starts. Uh, 2012, he had 12 starts, but he was not very good that year at age 26. So it's his age 27 through age 32. He is phenomenal. Wins two Cy Youngs. Uh, is always one of the best pitchers in baseball. It is a five-year stretch that very few players can rival in Indians history. Uh, if you're talking about just a five-year peak of performance, Corey Kluber is likely on the Indians' all-time rotation. But when we're looking over a career, um, it's just the, the mix of the injury last year and that kind of 
scuttling him a bit with him now being traded away and we don't know what he's going to be but i mean you just go through the the 2013 year he's a solid arm he's about league average 2014 is that first Cy Young finishes ninth in the Cy Young in 2015 2016 is third first in 2017 2018 he finishes third uh you know give it up for Corey Kluber he should get his number retired he's not going to make the all-time team but he has been uh at peak one of the greatest pitchers that has ever come through the door for the Cleveland Indians and him and early win are just they're in this like tier along with two other arms that we're going to have to save for Friday's show and we're going to talk about Mel Harder here real quickly. Mel Harder is actually third all-time, and he's another one of those guys where I think... So he debuts with the Indians in 1928 at age 18, and he would pitch with the Indians through 1947. He would pitch 20 years for the Cleveland Indians. He would appear in 582 games as a starter. Or I'm sorry, 582 games as a starter, 433 games. Not, you know, a four-time All-Star, and... Led the league in a category twice. That was 1933, which was not even his all-star year, but that was his best season. Um, he was 23. His age 24, 25, 26, and 27 seasons are his his kind of peak. And then he goes back to being kind of more of an average starter. But uh, he is third all-time in Indians' uh B war baseball reference war but it's mostly because baseball reference war is a compiler stat you know we look at someone like Corey Kluber Corey Kluber essentially we talked about had five good years with Cleveland uh and in five good years his value is a 32.2 Harder's is a 48.5 in four times the length so that gives you an idea when you're looking at it one was a fantastic pitcher and one was just steady but really healthy and steady so even though Harder is third all time, uh, he doesn't. He's not really in the discussion for me. Uh, so Kluber and Win, and then the two guys we will say for Friday show as we finish this off as we're running long. We'll talk about Sam McDowell and Bob Levin. So I've already kind of said Kluber and Win aren't going to make it. They're kind of our uh, seventh and eighth arms, as it were. So we're going to talk about five and six. The debate between McDowell and Lemon, and why I make the choice I make for the number five pitcher all-time in Indians history. I want to remind everyone to tell your smart devices to play Locked On Fantasy, play Locked On Indians, uh, Locked On Major League Podcast. All that stuff is fun. Uh, If you're enjoying this all-time series, remember you can go back and find the previous uh, entries throughout where I went through all the position players in Indians history. I didn't do DH, I don't think, but maybe I did. It's been a while, and there's been a lot of these. Uh, we will do a quick one on relievers, and by a quick one, it's probably going to be a whole episode because this is me and nothing is ever quick. But uh, I hope you're having fun. I hope you're learning something. I know for me, it, it's been a real learning experience divi- uh, diving into some of this stuff. I mean, I didn't even really get to talk about guys like Louis Tiant or uh, Jim Bagby, who we talked about on the uh, 54 Indians. And nope, not 54, the 1920 Indians, correct, with Bagby. But, uh, you know, some of those other arms that stand out for performance who maybe you just kind of didn't have the exposure to. And I hope I'm bringing some exposure to some new names for everyone. 
As always, you are fantastic. I appreciate all of the support. We do have a new sponsor coming up for this month of May, which is awesome news. Uh, I'm going to hear this week. We might be going back to weekly because we have a full month by sponsor. That is awesome for us, and it is thanks to fans like you out there who are downloading, listening, and reviewing and showing people that the Lockdown Podcast is a place that you should do your ads because people are listening and enjoy the content here. So... Thank you again. I've been Jeff Ellis. You can find me on Twitter at JeffMLBDraft. I have not been super active on there, but still hit me up with questions and things I can put on the show. And as always, go Tribe.